Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Psalm 118 this morning. We're going to leave uh, Paul and Silas in jail for another week. (laughs) Hopefully they'll get out next Sunday. I'm planning on it, Lord willing. But uh, we're going to deviate from our study in the book of Acts and uh, deal with the Thanksgiving theme, which I hopefully will be appropriate for our celebration of Thanksgiving on uh, Thursday, Lord willing. Psalm 118 is one of those great hymns of Thanksgiving. And I'd like to uh, actually read the first four verses as we uh, give thought to things we should be thankful for in this season of Thanksgiving. Psalm 118, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. And as always, it is our great joy to read from the inspired Word of God, so give reverent attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness is everlasting. And then you can drop down to verse 29. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. May God bless the reading of His Word. Well, Thanksgiving, uh, at least as we celebrate it in America, is um, often aimed at giving thanks to God for our temporal blessings. Uh, We go back to the Puritans in the year 1621, and they celebrated their harvest festival with the American Indians. And they gave thanks for God's provision for them. About half of their company had died during that harsh winter before. So they started out to be around 100. Now they're down to about 50. And yet, uh, though half of them have died, they had survived. The other half had survived and had uh, grown some crops. And during the fall of that year, had enough to celebrate and give thanks to God with a harvest festival, which was their tradition. The American Indians showed up with their venison. They had gone out themselves and shot turkey and fowl and ducks and whatever they could grow out of their gardens. And they had quite a festival for a number of days. Basically, what uh, our Thanksgiving celebration has been is to thank God for all the blessings that we have, the food, the, the health, the provisions that God has made for us, and to be thankful for what we have, not so much and mindful of what we don't have, but to be thankful for what we do have. But in addition to thanking God for what we do have, our temporal blessings, that we always somehow seem to not thank God enough for. We commit the sin of omission by not thanking Him for those things. I suggest to you that there's something even greater that we should give thanks to God for uh, this season in addition to our temporal blessings. And that is we should give thanks to God for God. We should give thanks to God for who He is, and primarily for His attributes which shine forth in all of their glory and perfections which should cause the people of God to adore Him and praise Him and give thanks to Him for who He is and what He has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. God is the fount of an Everlasting and eternal reservoir of grace and mercy as we have just sung about. And it's important that God's people give thanks to God. Remember several weeks ago when we were looking at our, our, uh, the fact that there is in, that every believer is a priest unto God, our Reformation Day meditation a month or so ago. We were reviewing what we are as priests and how as new covenant priests we should 
live out our lives as priests. And part of that involves what Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 reminds us, that we should, as priests, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. That's what we should be doing. We are called to be priests. Every believer is a priest. And we offer sacrifices, not animal sacrifices, but a sacrifice of praise to God. The fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. That is our continual sacrifice that we should be offering up to God. The psalmist reminds us also that he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors God. And so it's important that we give thanks to God. In Psalm 118, this is exactly what we are exhorted to do in verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord. And the psalmist gives us basically two reasons why we should give thanks to God. Both of these reasons are rooted in God Himself. Not specifically for the outward blessings, but to give thanks to God for His character, for His attributes, for all other blessings flow out of that. And so he says, give thanks to God for He is good. The goodness of God we should thank Him for. And last year we attempted to meditate on that aspect of Psalm 118 verse 1. And this year for our Thanksgiving meditation, I'd like for us to look at the second thing we're to give thanks to God for. And that is for His loving kindness is everlasting. So give thanks to God for He is good. For His loving kindness is everlasting. This particular word for loving kindness is the Hebrew word chesed. And when you say it correctly, it has a hard H on the front in Hebrew and you kind of have to choke and spit and grunt and groan when you say it. Chesed kind of the idea. So I don't want to be spitting on you all morning, so I'll try to soften it. So it's just chesed. But that's the Hebrew word. This is a marvelous and incredible word. God's chesed. His loving kindness, which is everlasting. Now, based on your translation, it may have other words besides everlasting, or rather loving kindness is everlasting. With the word loving kindness, it could translate it like the ESV as steadfast love, or in the New King James as mercy, or the NIV as love, or in other places, loyal love or covenant love. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it normally translates the Hebrew hesed with the word mercy. Mercy. So, the word loving kindness in the New American Standard that I'm reading is a word hesed which has a variety of nuances. It is a deep and rich word summarizing, in effect, the loving mercy, the loving kindness, the loving loyalty and faithfulness of our great covenant God. Several things I'd like for us to look at as you as you look at Psalm 18 again, and you noticed as we read it, it begins and ends with exactly the same words. Like two bookends. In verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And then the very last verse, 29, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. It's as if the psalmist says this needs to basically be the front cover and the back cover of everything you do. Give thanks to God because He's good and because His loving kindness is everlasting. Let that soak into your life. Live in the middle of that. Let your life experience what it means to be joyful and to praise and give thanks to God because of His goodness and because of His loving kindness, which is everlasting. Live in that. Experience it. Start there and end there. Let it be the beginning, the end, the alpha, and the omega of your relationship with God. 
As we look at this word hesed, there are a variety of nuances I want to quickly walk through with you to help you appreciate the depth and richness of God's loving kindness. And the first one is just to remember that this word is oftentimes understood in a covenant context. God's hesed, His loving kindness, is often in the, in the context of His covenant. And first and foremost, with Israel, the nation of Israel. So we read, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Now notice here, He keeps His, com- he keeps his covenant and His loving kindness to a thousand generations. So that loving kindness is oftentimes connected with God's covenant. It is His covenant love. It is the love that He has for His people that He has enshrined in a covenant. A covenant that He has committed Himself to. A covenant that He has promised. And He will not lie nor break His covenant. Now the covenant that God made with Israel, of course, had both blessings and curses, right? You can read of this in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. But God is faithful to the covenant. He will bring judgments upon Israel at times for their sin, but His loving kindness will eventually restore them to their place of outward privilege and blessing. And this is really the first idea of this word for for loving kindness. It's His covenant love. That God is faithful to His promises to Israel. He will show mercy to Israel even when they're, they're in rebellion against Him. That's part of the, the nature of His loving kindness. It is covenant love. And even when Israel fails to keep their end of the covenant, when they become covenant breakers, God is still the covenant keeper. He will always keep His side of the covenant. Even when Israel sometimes will go wandering away after idols and worship them and deserve God's wrath, and yet after God may judge them for a time, His hesed, His loving kindness will come back to that wayward nation and restore them again to the position of privilege. And usually just for God's namesake. Remember while Israel was in Egypt, And while in Egypt, they worshipped the idols of Egypt. Most of them did. They carried them out from Egypt with them when they left. But God's covenant love, God's loving kindness rescued them and redeemed them out of Egypt physically, out of slavery, and destroyed their enemies. And all of that is due to His covenant love. That love is unshakable. It's due to God's loyalty to His covenant. It's due to, to the fact that even though Israel is, is continually fails to keep their side of the covenant, God will always be faithful to keep His side. And some say that Hesed is best understood as God's covenant love. Now there's another aspect of this covenant love that is even greater and deeper than God's covenant with Israel. And that is His special covenant love to the remnant, the elect within Israel. And that's what we see, for example, in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, when God is speaking forth from the top of Mount Sinai, and He comes to the second commandment about not making any graven images. And He says, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate Me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love Me and keep My commandments. So there's a true Israel within Israel. As Paul will later say in Romans chapter 9, There is a true remnant within the nation. And to those, they receive a special layer, deepness, richness of God's loving kindness. To the nation as a whole, God expresses His loving kindness in restoring them to physical 
outward privileges and blessings, but there's a deeper level that God has for those who love Him and keep His commandments to the elect, the remnant, the chosen, the true believers within the nation. And we are actually a part of that covenant love as well. It's a very rich love. It's a love that will betroth us to God forever. That will belongs only to those who know God in truth. And most of the Israelites did not. And yet God was faithful to them outwardly as a nation, but to us, to believers, there's even a deeper level of God's loving kindness. Even though God made covenant with Israel, it put them in an incredible blessed position with many privileges, it did not guarantee their salvation. It did not guarantee that every Jewish person or Israelite person would come to know God in true saving faith. As Paul says in Romans 9.27, quoting from Isaiah, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. The remnant receives a deeper layer of God's loving kindness that we'll see also throughout the Scriptures. That loving kindness not just to the nation in terms of outward blessings and privileges, but spiritual and eternal covenant rich blessings to the remnant, to the believer, is ultimately an expression of God's new covenant. The old covenant had curses and blessings in it. The new covenant has only blessings in it. And this is ultimately given again to the remnant within Israel, the true spiritual Israel, Gentiles will be grafted in through Christ, but we inherit the loving kindness of the Lord in full measure, full strength, not diluted by the curses of the old covenant. Because in the new covenant, they will all know the Lord and all experience fully of His loving kindness. So it's a covenant love. That's the first thing I want you to understand. And that's something we should thank God for. We should give thanks to God For His loving kindness, which is a covenant love, which He will not break, which is firm and sure because He does not lie. The second thing I want you to know about this hesed, this infinite love of God, is that this loving kindness of God is that again, there is no end to it. There's no limits to it. It is an infinite love. Look at some of these verses. Psalm 36, verse 5. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Psalm 103, verse 11. For high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. And Psalm 108, verse 4. For your loving kindness is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the skies. Now these are amazing verses because what the psalmist, when he's trying to think of how great, how infinite the loving kindness of God is, he can compare it to the biggest thing he's aware of in his world. And that is the heavens. That God's loving kindness is greater than the heavens. Now understand how how little did did, did they know of the vastness of the heavens back in the days of the Bible. They didn't have telescopes. They didn't have the Hubble telescope out in space to give us a greater insight of the size and massiveness of our universe. As Eric told me a couple of weeks ago and, and, and showed me where, it's, uh, where you can find it on the internet, the heavens are, are incredibly massive now. I used to think there was a few... 100 billion galaxies, but oh, that's way too small. They now guesstimate based on what they can see and what they assume is out there based on other evidence that there are about 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. Not stars, not 2 trillion stars. We're talking 2 trillion galaxies. And each galaxy can have on the average of 100 to 200 billion stars in it. Some much larger, some smaller. So the size of the heavens now, and this won't mean anything to you because it doesn't mean anything to me, but it's 93 billion 
light years across a galaxy, I think. 93 billion light years. Well, what's a light year? Well, light travels at 186,000 miles a second. So that's the, the light can go around the planet Earth seven and a half times in one second. That's how fast light travels. 186,000 miles a second. Every second, light goes around the Earth seven and a half times. So then you add up the number of seconds in a year, and that's a lot. And that length, that distance would become one light year. Way out there. Now multiply that times 93 billion. And that's the size of our universe. It's a number that we really can't comprehend. I just, it just it doesn't make any sense because I can't even begin to imagine the size of the universe that God has created. Now David didn't know that. <clears throat> they looked up and they saw the heavens and they, they could see what they could see, but they had no idea of the vastness. And yet when the Spirit of God wants to communicate to us how great and big the loving kindness of God is, the greatest thing that they could ever see would be the heavens. And they say the loving kindness of the Lord extends to the heavens. It's above the heavens. It's beyond the heavens. So that God's love for you and for me is infinite. It's so vast and unsearchable. It's unfathomable. And that's how great the love of God is. And you know, in our own universe, if you go out to the outer galaxies, you know what those galaxies are doing? They're still expanding. Our universe is continuing to expand. But it will never get so big that it will come close to, to being as big as the loving kindness of the Lord. You and I live under God's loving kindness. We live in it and on it. It's, it's all around us. And that's why Paul could pray for the church at Ephesus. Oh, that God would help you to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Because God's love for you, love for His people, is infinite in its scope and in its size. Someone once wrote, Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That's how vast the love of God is. And this is something that we should give thanks to God for. That you can never, never comprehend the greatness of God's love for His people. And of course, there's a great amount of comfort involved in this love. Because that means if it's infinite, if it's greater than the heavens, then we can never exhaust it. You can never run it dry. It will never become empty. It will never stop flowing, for it is an ever-flowing river of mercy, of love, of kindness towards His people. There's no sin that can dam it up. There's no calamity that can divert its flow. God's loving kindness is infinite towards His people. And it is a, a, a loving kindness that we should give thanks to God for. Look how comforting this massive loving kindness of God is for His people. In Psalm 36, David writes, How precious is your loving kindness, O God! And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. You know, when life gets tough and difficult, God's people can run under the shadow of His loving kindness. Oh God, with all of this going on, You love me. You're kind to me, oh God. Your love for me is far greater than I can ever comprehend. And nothing can take away Your love from me. 
Psalm 63, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. I mean, the love of God for me is better than my life because it secures my eternity. God's love is, is the best thing that I have in this world. In Psalm 89, verse 1, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. So it's comforting to God's people when we think about the infinite loving kindness of God to each one of us. Well, not only is it infinite, it's everlasting, and that's the main emphasis in our verse. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. You know, 57 times in the Old Testament, it says that God's Hesed love is everlasting. 57 times. One psalm, Psalm 136, you can go look at that sometime, has it in every verse. 26 times in that one psalm, Psalm 136 has 26 verses in it, and every verse has your loving kindness is everlasting. It's kind of like the Spirit of God wants us to understand that truth. God's love is everlasting. It's infinite, but it's also everlasting. Deuteronomy 7.9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps His covenant with His and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation. A thousand generations. In other words, that's not a literal number in the sense that, well, okay, you get to a thousand and then His loving kindness will come to a screeching halt. No, it's just a very, very large number to symbolically say there's no end to it. The number 1,000 is usually used in the Bible in a symbolic way like that. It's not to say that it ends at 1,000. No, it's just who's going to ever get out to 1,000 generations? But God's love is, is eternal. That's the main idea that He's trying to communicate. And to emphasize that in Psalm 103, verse 17, the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Is forever. In Lamentations 3, verse 22, the Lord's loving kindnesses, indeed, they never cease. For His compassions, they never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So God's loving kindness will never cease, will never stop, because it's eternal. Nothing can kill it. Nothing can stop it. It is forever, from everlasting to everlasting, God loves His people. And nothing will ever change that. I think what's so encouraging about this is that God's hesed, His loving kindness, His loyal love is always there even when it's not visible. And I think that's why David could say in Psalm 23, after he's talked about that, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And at the very end of that particular psalm, he gives that encouraging, comforting word that surely goodness and hesed, loving kindness, will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You don't always see God's loving kindness outwardly manifested in our life at times, but it's there. And David could say, you know what? Even though I have these issues in my life, these valleys, these struggles, these trials, but God's goodness and His hesed the very things we're to give for. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. And His loving kindness is everlasting. His goodness and His faithfulness, His hesed, will follow me all the days of my life. I'll never be able to outrun it. I'll never be able to lose it. I'll never be able to hide and escape it. Because in Psalm 139, David would say that, you know, where can I go from the Lord? If I descend to Sheol, He's there. 
If I go as far as the, the east and the west, He's there. And His loving kindness is always there. It's an everlasting. It will never stop, never die. Even in the times that we don't see it, it is still there. Sometimes, you know, people didn't recognize Christ. He was right there with them. And they didn't even recognize Him. Remember after the resurrection of our Lord at the empty tomb, Mary was there troubled. Where was Christ? Where was Jesus? And she turned around and saw a man there thinking that He was the gardener. She didn't recognize Him. But He was there. And then when He spoke her name, Mary, then suddenly she saw Him. The Lord's loving kindness is always with us. We don't always see it in our circumstances. Later on that day, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus met a man walking to Emmaus. And they had quite the conversation about what had just happened in Jerusalem and about Jesus. And, and they didn't recognize it. This was Jesus right there with them. They didn't recognize Him. Until they ate the meal and He broke the bread and He blessed it and suddenly they recognized Him. We don't always see the loving kindness of God, but it's always there. It's everlasting. It's always with us. Nothing can change that. Even the servant of Elisha went out early that morning and, and, was, and was startled by seeing all the Arameans, their, their armies and horses and chariots surrounding the city to capture Elisha. Because Elisha was telling the king of Israel where the Aramean armies were so he could escape them. And they realized that it was coming from the prophet. So let's go get the prophet so that we can eventually defeat the king of Israel. And they surrounded the city where Elisha and his servant was. The servant got up early, went out, and he saw all that. And he was, he was terrified by it. And then Elisha prayed, Oh God, open his eyes. Open his eyes to see that we're protected. And God opened his eyes and he looked up and he saw all the angels on their chariots of fire and horses surrounding the city. They were safe. They were protected. God's loving kindness and presence was there, though they couldn't see it. He couldn't see it. And this is the great encouragement of God's everlasting love. It's always there. It's always with us. And even when we go through phases of life where we don't see it, He's always there. That's why one of the titles given to Jesus and Isaiah in the birth of Christ, is that they would call His name what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. We may not always see it or feel it or experience His presence, but He's always with us. That's His name. He's with us, God. He's the with us, God. And His loving kindness is always with us as well. Another aspect to this Hesed Love that we should give thanks to God for, not only because it's a covenant love, an infinite love, an eternal love, but also because it's an incredibly gracious love. It's actually rooted in the sovereignty of God as God chose Israel. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, He tells them, You only have I chosen, literally known, among all the families of the earth. So God chose Israel to be a special covenant nation to set His loving kindness upon them, not on the other nations, not on the Philistines, not on the Egyptians, but only on Israel that He make a covenant with them and choose them to be His special people. And yet it was not because Israel was worthy of such a selection. In Deuteronomy 7, God tells them through Moses that the Lord didn't set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other uh, people, for you are the fewest of all peoples. And what this is emphasizing by saying, look, you are not more in number than any of the peoples because numbers back then meant power. 
Numbers meant prosperity. Numbers meant success as a people and vitality. And, and God is saying, I didn't choose you because you were, you were somehow special in any way of outward measurement. I didn't choose you because you were more in number, because you were powerful or prosperous or successful or vibrant or any of that stuff, but rather you were the fewest of the people. You were the little runt in the litter. That's what you were. I chose you. You were the, you were the fewest. You were the inferior. You were the one that was struggling the most. You were very few. And it's just emphasizing the graciousness of His loving kindness. The graciousness of His election and His covenant with them. And then later on in Deuteronomy 9, He says, look, I'm going to bring you into the land of Canaan. And when I bring you in there, I don't want you to think, don't think for a second that it's because you're good or you're righteous. In fact, it's the opposite. So He says in Deuteronomy 9, it's, It's not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess the land. No, no, no. It's my grace. It's my sovereignty. So God's love is rooted in this gracious, sovereign choice that's not based upon who we are, but it's based upon who God is. He's a gracious God. And of course, we are very unworthy of that love. Every one of us here that's a believer that has uh, an interest in the covenant, infinite, eternal love of God, we don't deserve it. Now it's true that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. But God did not choose Israel because they had a good heart. Matter of fact, at Mount Sinai, when God is establishing the covenant with Israel, and God speaks to them the Ten Commandments. The Jews came together, the Israelites came together, and they, they say to God that uh, they would obey all of His commandments. And God, it's interesting how God responded, knowing their heart, their fickleness of their heart, said, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would keep all My commandments. He knew they would not. Deuteronomy 5.29 Israel's unfaithfulness to God and unfaithfulness to the covenant is legendary. Sad, but legendary. What's so amazing to me is that God's loving kindness was so gracious that it continued to be faithful and poured out God's blessings in spite of their idolatry. This is what's so incredible to me, thinking of how gracious God's love is. At Mount Sinai, think about this. God has just sent ten plagues on Egypt. Decimated the nation of Egypt to rescue His chosen people who had been worshiping idols while they were in Egypt and brought the idols out to them in the wilderness as well. But His loving kindness overcame that. And He sent Moses. You have the ten plagues. You have the tenth plague, the death of the Passover lamb, which uh, saved all their firstborn from death. And then He brings them out with a mighty hand. He brings them to the Red Sea. They saw the ten plagues. The miracle of it. The distinguishing part of it. Because they were protected and shielded through a lot of that. He brings them out to the Red Sea. And and they see the miracle of God dividing the Red Sea. They cross through the Red Sea. They get on the other side. The Egyptian armies come into the Red Sea. God closes the water and kills them and wipes them all out. They see all of that. They see the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. They get the manna. They get the water. They're seeing all these miracles. They, they get to Mount Sinai. And now they're standing at the base of Mount Sinai. And it gets all lit up in smoke. And fire and lightning is going on. And an eerie trumpet sound. And they're standing and they're seeing this theophany of God descending down on the top of Mount Sinai. And then the voice of God Himself speaks the Ten Commandments. And they hear all of that. They see all of that. And what do they do? When Moses goes back up on the mountain for 40 days, and he disappears, and they're wondering where he's at. Aaron, make a golden calf for us. Are you kidding me? 
After all they've seen and heard and witnessed and the earthquake shaking and all of that, make a golden calf for us? The golden calf was a throwback to the, the Egyptian god Apis, the bull god. Are, they, are their hearts turning back to idolatry so quickly? They did. And yet, such is the gracious character of God's loving kindness that He continues to pour out His blessings upon them. And even so, later on, God lets Moses see the backside of the pre-incarnate Christ walking along. He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. And as God is walking by, He pronounces that He is a gracious God full of loving kindness. Hesed love. In spite of all the unfaithfulness of Israel, God's loving kindness was still there. It is a gracious love. It is a love that is not based upon your character or your obedience or your faithfulness. Praise God. But it's based upon His character, His obedience, His holiness, His grace. It's based upon Him, not us. The second example of Israel's unfaithfulness and unworthiness, as is ours, is the story of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea was to love a woman, marry a woman who was unfaithful, an adulterous wife, who eventually left Hosea for her lovers, who later abandoned her, and she became so destitute she was sold as a slave. But God told Hosea, Hosea, I want you to love that woman because your relationship will be a picture of my love for Israel. And Israel has been like an adulterous wife to me. She has been unfaithful to me over and over and over again. But though she is unfaithful, my loving kindness is faithful to her. Hosea, now go buy back your your wife, from the slave market. So he goes and he buys back Gomer for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Barley is poor man's bread. 15 shekels is half the valuation of a, of a normal slave of 30 shekels. But she was so run down, her body was so depleted, she was so emaciated, she was worth half the value of a normal slave. He bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Gomer in her life and in her sin and her unfaithfulness is a sad picture of Israel who repeatedly played the spiritual harlot and turned to idols and other gods and yet God's love was gracious and faithful. His loving kindness is everlasting. And God, even in the times when Israel strayed from the Lord, God continued to bless them with food and oil and wine and silver and gold. Even when they used that to worship the Baals, God continued to bless them. It's an incredible love. It's a gracious love. And aren't we thankful this morning that God's love for us is equally gracious? For who among us are worthy of such love? And to know that though we are unfaithful at times, and though we sin against our God at times, there is nothing that can stop the love of God because of its size, its magnitude, its grace for the unworthy and the undeserving. This is the nature of our covenant-keeping God. This is the depth and graciousness of His love. And it's this kind of a love that can revive us when we're sinking. Psalm 119, verse 88. Psalmist cries out, Revive me according to Your loving kindness. Oh God, I'm just empty. I'm dry on the inside, Lord. Revive me. Fill me up with Your love. According to Your loving kindness. Pour out Your goodness on me, Lord. Show me Your your face again, Father. 
And it's the loving kindness of God that comes and revives the saints of God when we're wilting in the sun, in the dryness of the desert. And so when Israel was out in the wilderness and experienced literally the dryness of those years, God kept coming to them with water from the rock and manna from the heaven. He continued to revive them and minister to them as a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in His great love. Isaiah 54 verse 10 says, For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, for my covenant of peace will not be shaken. See, the mountains may disappear. The, the hills may shake. Your life may be experiencing an earthquake of troubles and trials. But God says, my loving kindness will not be shaken. My covenant of peace will not go through an earthquake. I am stable. I am committed. My loving kindness will not leave you. My love is solid. It's there. You can count on it. It will never be taken from you. Man, we should give thanks to God for such a gracious love. And of course, finally, this loving kindness, this hesed love of God is a saving love. This is the sweetest of all. Because it's the hesed, the loving kindness of the Lord that takes away our sins. In Psalm 51, verse 1, David, after conviction of his adultery with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah, her husband, and Nathan came and poked him in the chest and said, Thou art the man. You remember the story. And then the intensity of his own sorrow and grief and repentance he writes Psalm 51. And in the midst of it, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. See, his hope for forgiveness was rooted in God's loving kindness. His covenant love, his infinite love, his eternal love, his gracious love. Blot out my transgressions according to your... Where will that come from? Where will the forgiveness come from? Your loving kindness. Your hesed, O God. In Psalm 130, verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with Him is abundant redemption. It's the loving kindness that redeems the sinner and brings him into fellowship with the Holy God. In Proverbs 16, verse 6, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. So atonement flows out of God's loving kindness. And in Micah 7.18, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity because He delights in hesed? Here it translates, instead of normally loving kindness, the New American Standard translates, he delights in unchanging love. That's his hesed, same word in Hebrew. Who is like our God who pardons iniquity because he delights in loving kindness? He delights in forgiving sinners. Psalm 103 is one of my favorites. We can all glory in this and give thanks to God for this verse. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Praise God for that. I would be burning in hell right now at this very moment if God dealt with me according to my sins. Nor has He rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. What has thrown our transgressions as far as the east is from the west? The loving kindness of God. The mercies of God. And that is ultimately where the hesed of God, the loving kindness of God, is ultimately found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. 
when you talk about Hesed of the Old Testament, the loving kindness of the Lord, thank Jesus Christ. Because He is the incarnation of God's Hesed love. His covenant love. His infinite and eternal and gracious love. It's all bottled up and came down from heaven in the form of a man, Jesus Christ. Fully God and fully man. He is the expression of the love of God to sinners like us. It's all found in Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the love of God incarnate. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have eternal life. See, God's Hesed love sent down the Lamb of God, He who is love Himself, to come down and die for sinners that we might know His grace and eternal mercy. Now there's a little grave in a little town in Virginia in the backyard of an old church. And on that grave you'll find the name of a young man named Albert Willis. Albert Willis was a young seminary student who died on October the 14th in the year 1864 right towards the end of our Civil War. He was in the Confederate Army He was an elite combat cavalry uh, member of the Confederate Army that was so successful in ambushing the Union supply depots and trains and wagons and railroad tracks that General Philip Sheridan commanded that whenever any of these guys from this cavalry combat unit of the Confederate Army are captured, they should be hanged immediately. Well, on this particular day, young Albert Willis, who was 20 years old at that time, and one of his comrades, who was also in the cavalry, were in fact captured and sentenced to die by hanging. The young Albert Willis, because he was a seminary student, was offered a chaplain's exemption so that he would not die. His companion would but he would not. But you see, his companion was married and had the hopes of a family. And young Albert Willis would not let his companion die. And he offered himself as a substitute for his friend. And the Union Army, the one in authority, allowed it. And Albert Willis died and was hung to death that his friend might go free. In those final moments, it's recorded that Albert Willis professed aloud his Christian readiness to die. He prayed for his executioners and was hanged. And Jesus tells us that greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Can you imagine doing that? For someone else, you're a young man, you have your whole life ahead of you, and yet you're willing to die for a friend. And as incredible as that sacrifice is, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is so much more. Paul explains it in Romans 5 when he says that one would Hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God's love and Christ's love for us is greater because we were not righteous in His eyes. We were not good people in His sight. We were not even His friends. Paul goes on to describe us as being helpless, ungodly, and His enemies. Christ didn't die for His friends so that He could live on. He died for those who hated Him. He died for His enemies. He died for the ungodly. And this is what makes Jesus Christ's love so special and so deep and so vast. There is none other like it. If your love starved here today, you need to know the love of Christ. 
There is none deeper. There is none greater. And we may feel betrayed and we may feel unloved and we may feel rejected. And all of that are experiences that we go through. But to know the love of Christ is to know a love that has no boundaries. To know the height and depth and breadth and length of God's love which is beyond our ability to understand. That's to know true love. Do we deserve it? No. It's a gracious love. Because Christ came and died for us when we were ungodly, helpless, and enemies. And yet this is the love that He offers. The grace He offers. The salvation He offers. If any sinner who by the grace of God feels their hearts convicted and they want forgiveness, and they know they deserve the wrath of God, they come to Christ in simple repentance and faith, He promises to save them and forgive them forever and ever. Jesus Christ is the incarnation of God's Hesed love. That covenant love, the new covenant love, the infinite, eternal, gracious, sacrificial love. That's Christ. That's the greatest love there is. So this Thanksgiving, be sure and thank God for all your temporal blessings. For every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. But as you give thanks to God for the turkey, don't forget to give thanks to God for the lamb. Remember to thank God for God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good and His loving kindness is everlasting. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You, Lord, how the Word of God points our eyes to Jesus Christ, to the greatness of Your love and the greatness of Your character to encourage us as we go through the wilderness phase of our journey on this earth. Lord, thank You that Your love is so constant, Your love is so deep, that we can never exhaust it. It will never run dry. It's a love that we can walk in and live in and experience each and every day. Help us to do that, Lord. For oftentimes, though it's all around us, we don't see it. We don't experience it. So Lord, open our eyes and see that our life is surrounded by the chariots of fire of God's loving kindness, of His Hesed love. And then fill our hearts with thanksgiving for the loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and turn to 16 in the white binder. How deep the Father's love for us. Number 16 in the white binder.
And now may God empower us as new covenant priests to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God through Jesus Christ. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. For those who offer up a sacrifice of thanksgiving give honor to Him. May the Lord bless your thanksgiving. God bless you. Amen.